1: Uber, the scandal-ridden driving, uh, ride-sharing service, is uh, evidently, reportedly, the subject of two additional formerly undisclosed investigations. And here to talk about why this company has been uniquely targeted by regulators and lawmakers, I want to bring in Max Chafkin, who writes for Bloomberg Businessweek and joins us uh, to talk a little bit about this. So, Max, you know, what is it about Uber that has made it subject to so many investigations. Right.
2: So as you said, we, we've learned, uh, my colleague Eric Newcomer reported uh, earlier this morning that First of all there is an additional criminal probe that's looking into Uber's alleged theft of trade secrets from Google and another one looking at price fixing. I think the answer to the question you ask of, of sort of what was going on and and this is in the piece but the company had kind of a culture of I guess you might say rule bending uh, and 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 some might call it legal innovation and I think that's that's a term that some people inside of Uber, Uber had used.
1: Others might call it cheating.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, and that's and that's something Something I think we've seen before in the financial services industry, where these financial services innovations sometimes, uh, you know, push into areas of uh, you know breaking ethical rules or even criminality.
0: Well, Max, I wonder if you get to tell us about the executive ranks of Uber. Who's there to actually fix the company and then justify its multi-billion-dollar valuation?
2: So, uh, so uh, uh, recently, uh, Travis Kalanick, uh, this, 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 the former CEO, a, a guy who's sort of most closely associated with the founding of Uber, uh, stepped down. There's a new CEO, uh, the former Expedia CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi. I, I hope, hope I'm getting that one uh, right, um, but on, on the pronunciation. But uh, he's been basically doing a an apology tour and, and sort of going around from to, to off from office to office to office, trying to sort of turn the page and say, this is not going to be a company that sort of by default uh, bends the rules. And we're learning that he is uh, looking into some of these sort of, you might call them counterintelligence programs. It, it, It appears that Uber had kind of almost its own personal sort of private spy service that was run by uh, the, the the former general counsel the former uh, chief security officer
1: right so just to get a little bit more specific about what the allegations are we uh, talked about their program called hell that that's what they named uh, that basically tracked other competing ride-sharing services where they were to allow uber drivers to go uh, compete with them more directly they also kind of cloaked themselves sometimes uber drivers and would arrive instead of some of the other competing Ride-sharing services; these are among uh, some of the, uh, the services that they provided that are being targeted by regulators. Right yeah, now. I mean, it,
2: it, when you when you take a step back, you you, you brought up HELL. There there was also a, a program, a similar program in Australia that was designed to, it seems like spy on, maybe you might say, uh, a, a, an Asian uh, a, a taxi service. Um, basically, in all sorts of ways, it appears that that engineers inside of Uber kind of. Broke with norms as far as privacy and and uh, sort of uh, you know data security is concerned. So so for instance, they were routinely uh, calling uh, cabs from from Lyft, a competitor, and and basically trying to hire those drivers. They were routinely scraping data from other services and and this this thing called Grayball, which is a subject of another investigation. They were sort of routinely trying to identify police and law enforcement officers, and try to make it more difficult for those people to use the app, basically giving law enforcement um, fake data, allegedly. So it's a whole bunch of, it's a whole swirl of things. You start to add it up, and and obviously it looks like a, a culture of, of, you know, that, that's
0: problematic to say the least. You know, Max, it, may, it makes me maybe consider that, you know, with a, a hefty valuation, uh, maybe consider that... How is the, it justified when you have competitors that may offer exactly the same kind of service without these legal uh problems. I mean, what competitive advantage do they have? They're, they got a list of clients and everyone has the app, but everyone's got the other app and they're the same clients.
2: Yeah. And I mean, this this gets to a, a pretty significant issue for Uber, which is right now they are trying to raise money, uh, raise a big boatload of money from SoftBank, including some of this money is going to buy out existing shareholders in, in an auction. And we don't know exactly what the the valuation is going to be. Is is it going to be, you know, closer to, to Uber's sort of on paper, valuation of around seventy billion, or is it going to be more like fifty billion, or something like that? And 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 the fact is that I, I think I think investors might might be asking questions about sort of how brittle is Uber's business, how 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 secure. I mean, why is this? not if, invest
0: in Lyft or why not invest in any of the other ride-sharing services? Because the thing is, it's supposed to be asset light, right? So you don't put all your capital into the automobiles. You let the drivers assume a lot of the risk, and you. Want a valuation of a tech company? Well, there are a lot of other people that can figure that out now.
2: Right. I mean, if you the thing is, if you believe in the business and you believe that that these companies create value, you, you still acknowledge that Uber is much bigger than any of these other companies. It has a bigger network. It's it's a better known brand. I, although Lyft is competitive in certain cities, Uber is kind of the the biggest uh, of these apps in most of the in most of the cities where ride-sharing companies play.
1: At what point, though, Max, does this start to snowball where you have regulators targeting the business both because of uh, some potential infractions as well as uh, mounting opposition from taxi uh, services that have been longstanding?
2: Well, I, it is starting to snowball. I mean, what, what we saw in London where where uh, regulators in London who had kind of given Uber the okay – sort of were reading this news that was happening in the U.S. about this program, Grayball, uh, which I mentioned earlier, and said, hey, wait a minute, we're not okay with this. And they basically announced that they were taking Uber's license away, and now they've sort of reopened negotiations. They're trying to negotiate a new deal with Uber. Uh, there are rumblings that the same thing could happen in Brazil. And I think it's important to remember, and, and Uber was very good at sort of playing local politics, like going from city to city, figuring out how to get their service legal, or basically pushing and forcing regulators there's hands to make it legal, but each of these cities have very specific local issues, and it's not like it's a done deal. Any any mayor anywhere around the world, if 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 he or she decides it's popular to go after Uber, can do that. And and there's not much Uber can do. And it's it could potentially, especially if criminal inquiries lawsuits continue to mount, this won't go away. It's not like Uber is legal everywhere, and it's going to be legal everywhere forever
0: just quickly because I know this is slightly off topic but you also have been writing a lot about Facebook and legal issues have you noticed that the technology industry now faces the legal same legal issues that maybe the non-tech world had faced you know decades earlier
2: yeah absolutely and I think there is an interesting sort of Facebook connection here the the Uber chief security officer Joe Sullivan was at Facebook and you wonder how common are these kind of internal spy agencies i mean Uber had a lot of consumer data, but it is not the only company in Silicon Valley with tons of data that's ultra competitive, that has been pushing in all sorts of ways. And I think we have to look at this and ask, you know, how common were these practices, you know, industry wide? And I don't think we know the answer yet.
0: All right. Well, we're going to look to you for the answer. I think you got almost, uh, you know, at least a couple next stories out of that one. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Max Chafkin. he is a columnist for Bloomberg Businessweek, a writer for Bloomberg, uh, giving us uh, some details about what's going on with Uber and those additional uh, criminal investigations.
1: Well, there is a 108-year-old company that a lot of people in America have never heard of. It is now called Mo Mochi Ice Cream. And the chief executive officer joins us now, Craig Berger. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. You became CEO about two months ago and uh, had previously been uh, the CFO of the company. What excited you about the opportunity of leading this particular company?
3: Yeah, I think the fact that we're innovation in the snacking category is everything I needed to hear and see. So the company has done a phenomenal job taking a very old uh, item like mochi ice cream and have really targeted the millennial consumer to bring it to the masses. So we're really changing the snacking world one mochi ball at a time.
0: All right. So can you tell us what exactly is a mochi? We, uh, many people may know it as a Japanese dessert. You're calling it a snack, the form factor, I, I'm obviously. I'm sorry.
1: I have to use this on my son tonight. I'm changing the world one mochi ball at a time, you know, when they start giving me flack about anything. Go on,
0: sorry. Well, they're going to give you a cooler of it later on, of yeah. course. <laughs> and, and I want, just tell people how it's made and, and a little bit of the history of the company, because if you're from Los Angeles at all, you're very familiar with uh, with the heritage of this company.
3: Yeah. Let me start Start so the company is 108 years old, uh, and it was a confectionery to start, so dealing in primarily uh, Japanese bakery items. Then in 1993, uh, the founders uh, invented basically mochi ice cream, which is a premium ice cream surrounded by sweet rice dough, uh, and that brand uh, was under the Mikawaya name, and it had primarily traditional Japanese flavors. So people who tried the product. Loved it, but the awareness was very small. So then in 2016, uh, Century Park Capital Private Equity out of Los Angeles purchased the company and they had this vision of taking a very ethnic uh, snack and really taking it to the masses by creating a brand new brand, the Mimo Mochi ice cream brand and coming out with more traditional flavors that we know like strawberry, chocolate, cookies and cream and really targeting the millennial consumer, something that had never happened before.
1: You mean rather than red bean paste paste or uh, green tea mochi, uh, they want to get more American. I'm wondering, where is the market for mochi ice cream? Is it simply in the big cities, or is there greater acceptance of more, uh, quote unquote, ethnic foods in other places outside of the cities?
3: Okay, great question. Let me start out with the market itself. So Mochi ice cream falls under the frozen novelty category, which is about a $3 billion category. And that category has been flat to down slightly over the last couple of years. Mochi ice cream is part of that category. Mochi ice cream is the category within there that it has the most growth uh, over the last uh, year or two, primarily driven by Mimo Mochi ice cream. Uh, it's definitely a coastal brand. Uh, we started out in L.A., And really, in the last seven months, have blown up Mimo Mochi ice cream nationwide. But in L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, and now New York, we're really blowing it up.
1: Craig, what's the biggest challenge for you to expand awareness of this brand? I mean, what have you been most surprised at uh, with respect to the difficulty?
3: Well, it's pretty interesting because most people you talk to have never heard of Mochi ice cream. So the first thing you try and do is... Have them try it. So, you know, we've hired a marketing team. Uh, we've got a strategy in place to uh, really increase the trial and awareness of the product. And part of that is being done through what we call the mochi bar concept. And we're, really, we're the first uh, ice cream company to break away from the ice cream freezer in the retailers and go into the perimeter of the food stores with a self-serve mochi bar and that's a paid sampling event because consumers are paying anywhere from a dollar fifty to two dollars for a mochi ball, and trying it on the spot. And it's usually the the the, the normal uh, reaction the first time uh, they bite into it. It's wow, that's kind of weird, and then the second bite is oh my god, I love this stuff. So it's uh, it's a great thing to see. You know, it's something that is really. Uh, taking the stores by uh, surprise and building overnight.
0: Was it a conscious effort uh, to turn it into a snack as opposed to a dessert and therefore the smaller form factor? Yeah, so we see it as
3: a snack. You know, millennials snack at least four times a day. Uh, This is a perfect product. It's like
0: 110 calories per per mochi ball?
3: 110 calories. It's handheld. It's portable. It's grab and go. It fits their lifestyle. You know, we have fifteen or so flavors. What does it cost? Uh, you know, it comes uh, by the ball if you buy it in a mochi bar it would be anywhere from a dollar fifty to two dollars a ball. In a six pack, the retail is about five ninety nine or a dollar a ball.
1: I love how targeted millennials are. They like snacks, not desserts because desserts are too fattening and they like it small and they like it quick
0: who right there you go well you've definitely defined the market and i think you're going to start eating some of these my yeah i must
3: say that thanks
0: much. we got to leave it there thanks very much craig Berger. he is the chief executive of momochi ice cream NAFTA, the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement, $525 billion. That's the total amount of trade between the United States and Mexico. Mexico is the number three uh, trading partner of the U.S. right after Canada, also a signatory to NAFTA. Here to tell us about the renegotiation of NAFTA is our own White House correspondent. We've got Jennifer Jacobs joining us from Washington, D.C. Jennifer, maybe just outline exactly what is scheduled to happen today, who's going to be there, and what do they really aim to accomplish? Uh,
4: first it's Jennifer Epstein uh, I beg of your on our White House team I uh, just wanted to make sure that that's clear so that people aren't confused uh, if they know our voices um, so uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is coming to the White House a little bit later today to meet with President Trump it's their fourth meeting since uh, President Trump took office at the beginning of the year um, and and This is the same time that there are a whole bunch of, uh, you know, that we're in this fourth round of trade negotiation talks, uh, and that's happening here in D.C. as well. Uh, You know, we're just anticipating the U.S. to continue to take uh, a pretty hard line on some things that they that the that they're kind of that the u s officials kind of expect uh Mexico and Canada to be locked into, including uh substantially raising uh the requirement of the requ- requirements for rules of origin for vehicles um you know what share uh has to be uh of the of the vehicle has to be built- built in the United States. Jennifer,
1: or in the rest of NAFTA, Jennifer, I- I'm struck by President Trump versus Congress versus his diplomats. Is President Trump uh, carrying the weight of a unified group of politicians and policymakers as he renegotiates NAFTA, or is he uh, increasingly isolated in some of his demands?
4: You know, I think this is a situation where it's increasingly isolated. I think it's been isolated all along. Uh, that that while there is certainly a, a big populist fervor uh, to pull out of NAFTA or that NAFTA is a bad deal and it must be renegotiated, uh, that there are so many uh so many U.S. lawmakers who are who. Really would not do not actually support going all the way and getting out of NAFTA. You know, for this president, it seems like threats are not just threats, but are. All, it depends on what it is, of course. You know, if we're talking about nukes, who knows? But uh, you know, threats on something like this are threats that he seems poised to follow through on, just the way he uh, has initiated the process of pulling out of the. Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, just as you know, we f- are anticipating some kind of uh, reversal from the um, Iran uh, deal. Uh, these are things where where this president is willing to negotiate is willing to threaten uh, in hopes of negotiating well. But uh, what ends up happening is that he just ends up uh, pulling out all all together and just giving up on these things.
0: Jennifer Epstein, uh, and I also I apologize uh, because of <laughs> no course problem. I know you, and yeah, I, I no just problem. want to mention also that people can follow you on Twitter. Uh, your Twitter ha- Twitter handle is at Jen Epps, J E N E P S. And uh, as someone who is uh, certainly covering a uh, historic presidency uh, and has a background in history with your degree from uh, Princeton, uh, can you just sort of step back for a moment and tell us what? Do you what kind of reactions or what conversations do you have with other people, uh, and their reaction to this effort to renegotiate NAFTA? What do they tell you? How do they react?
4: Well, thanks, Tim, and don't don't worry about it. It's fine. It happens all the time in both ways. With us, we get each other's emails all the time. Um, so I think that that in the context of this, this is pretty unusual. You know, this is a president who seems to be, you know, at once attempting to fulfill some of its campaign promises, which is something that presidents try to do and oftentimes, you know, get stopped up on either because once they get into office, they realize, you know, just how untenable something is, or they just can't get the support from Congress. Something like this, the president seems to be ignoring all of that and just trying to move ahead in his own way uh, without uh, necessarily getting anybody else on board. Uh, and that just is kind of, uh, you know, indicative of his style and his uh, desire to be a bull in the china shop.
1: You know, I'm struck by the fact that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce chief executive officer Thomas Donahue was speaking in Mexico City yesterday and said that he would fight, quote, like hell to defend NAFTA if Trump tries to pull out. Uh, I'm wondering what could be the fallout if President Trump decides to single handedly pull out?
4: Well, you know, it, it would obviously, uh, you know, turn the ire of a whole lot of members of chamber of commerce of the Co- chamber of commerce, which is, you know, the hugest uh, uh, business lobby in the country. That all that that you would suddenly have a president who still, despite having dissolved his various councils, uh, seems to, you know, rely on that kind of support and and the support of the establishment, mainline Republicans, uh, dwindling as they may be, that uh, if, if they can't even rely on him to yeah. kind of support their business interests, uh, you know, why should they be supporting him at all?
1: Jennifer Epstein, thank you so much for joining us. Jennifer Epstein covers the White House for us here at Bloomberg News. and uh, NAFTA talks are going on today in Washington between President Trump uh, and the head of Canada.